Let me pray for us. Well, Father, thank you for, uh, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your church. Thank you for your word. Uh, what a blessing uh, it is to study, to look into your word, to see you more accurately, to see you more clearly, uh, and to love you more deeply. We want to do that, and I pray tonight would uh, help us take another step in that direction. Uh, would your spirit be our guide? Lead us and guide us, please, into all truth. Your word is truth. And we thank you for it and pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Job. Let's see. Oh, yeah, unmerited suffering. Yeah. Woo. Unmerited suffering. So, one last time, let's try to get a little feel for the forest, and then we'll finish up the last few trees. Uh, so, let me, I'll summarize this theologically first. God's justice regarding the treatment of the righteous is what's on trial here in the book. God's justice regarding the treatment of the righteous is what's on trial here. The Satan's accusation is that Job only pursues righteousness because of what he gets, his possessions, or what he keeps, his health. If he doesn't get or keep, he won't pursue righteousness. So the Satan has basically said to God, you've made it worth Job's while. Take away his stuff and his health, and he'll curse you to your face. The implication the Satan is making is there is no such thing as disinterested righteousness. There's no such thing. I get righteousness either because of what I get or what I keep. There's no such thing as righteousness for righteousness' sake. That's the Satan's accusation. Question. This is the big question of Job. Will Job maintain he's still righteous even if he loses everything and suffers for no apparent reason? If he will then righteousness is his most valuable possession, not his stuff or his health. He'll vindicate God's wisdom and God's ways. If he won't, meaning he'll, he'll confess, even though he's not done anything wrong, if he'll confess, believing that God will relent, then the Satan's accusations will be proven correct. So far, through 37 chapters, Job has maintained his righteousness in spite of all these things. But he's begun to develop a level of self-righteousness over all of this. So, Job is righteous and suffering, but he's in the dark. He doesn't know chapters 1 and 2 like you and I do. He's looking through the lens of the retribution principle. And his friends believe, since God is just, 
that Job must be a great sinner. Job, maintaining his righteousness, begins to voice suspicions about God's justice. So he's called for a hearing in court with God as defendant and himself as attorney. If Job really had good friends, they would have stopped him right about now. (laughs) Job, not such a good idea to take God into court. But that's what Job has called for. And so chapter 38, this is the great part of the book. God shows up. God is showing up in chapter 38. They've been talking about a whirlwind, and in chapter 38, God shows up from the whirlwind. Listen, I mean, listen to this, okay? You're Job. You're a regular guy. You've been living on the trash heap for a while, um, not doing so well, and here comes God. Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Whoa. (laughs) Brace yourself like a man because I have some questions for you and you must answer them. This is like Paul Harvey. You know, (laughs) you get Jesus (laughs) and then, woo, here's God the Father. Who Who is this who questions my wisdom? Brace yourself like a man. I have some questions for you, and you will answer them. (laughs) If I'm Job right now, I'm starting to throw ashes on my head. (laughs) He just starts off this way. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. (laughs) Who determined its dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? What supports its foundations and who laid its cornerstone as the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? And he kind of goes on from there. (laughs) He talks about the sea and its boundaries. Uh, a A little while later in that chapter, he talks about, have you visited the storehouses of the snow Or seen the storehouses of hail? Uh, Where's the path to the source of light? Where's the home of the east wind? He, He asks him these questions, and he keeps going and going and going and going. Finally, in chapter 40, God goes through two chapters. Finally, in chapter 40, then the Lord said to Job, Do you still want to argue with the Almighty? You are God's critic, but do you have the answers? Ah. Job, then Job replied to the Lord, I am nothing. How could I ever find the answers? I will cover my mouth with my hand. I have said too much already. I have nothing more to say. (laughs) but God does. (laughs) Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind, brace yourself like a man because I have some questions for you and you must answer them. Will you discredit my justice 
and condemn me just to prove you are right. Are you as strong as God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? All right. Put on your glory and splendor, your honor and majesty. Give vent to your anger. Let it overflow against the proud. Humiliate the proud with a glance. Walk on the wicked where they stand. Bury them in the dust. Imprison them in the world of the dead. Then even I would praise you, for your own strength would save you. (laughs) If I'm Job right now, I'm crawling away. (laughs) He goes on through the end of chapter 41 asking Job questions. Let me give you some help and summarize what God is asking. God addresses Job as if he'd claimed to be a God full of power and wisdom. God never answers Job's questions, but instead asks him 64 questions about creation, nature, and the moral order of the universe. Bottom line, he refreshes Job's perspective. Ready? Underline this. God is God, and Job isn't. That really is kind of the bottom line of the book. God is God, and Job isn't. Or you can fill in your name right there if you want. I don't want to either, but I have to. God is God, and Bill isn't. Oh, wow, crumb. (laughs) God's speeches, the first two chapters, Job, how can you comprehend my ways with men when you can't even comprehend my ways in nature? He makes an argument from the lesser to the greater. If man is greater than nature, if you can't understand this, how are you ever going to understand this? Job, your haughty attack on my ways in the moral universe as if I were incompetent or even evil is totally absurd and uncalled for. This is tough love. (laughs) That's what this is. This is God speaking truth in love to his servant. God's points. That's a summary of his speeches. Two big speeches, two big points, two big uh, summaries, his points regarding his wisdom, God's wisdom. Job, your complaining suggests you could do better than I. But that isn't the case. Regarding God's power, Job, since you've seen through creation that I've turned chaos into order, beauty and good, can't I do that in your situation? Regarding God's character, Job, on the basis of what you do understand about me, Can't you humbly, patiently, and completely trust me for what you don't 
understand. Reading between the lines just a little bit here. Job, my sovereign wisdom vindicates my justice and the way I deal with men. Job, trust my word and my character even when you're in circumstances that don't make sense. Job, give me your undivided allegiance. Job, the answers you're seeking are found in who, not in why. How does Job respond? Let's summarize Job's responses. The first time in uh, chapter 40, when Job finally speaks, Job is humbled, and he responds with the awe of a renewed perspective of God. But as yet, there's been no repentance. So God continues his questioning. Job is sorry. Job says, I've spoken out of turn. I've spoken too much. But he doesn't repent. He doesn't repent until we get on later in chapter 42. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do anything and no one can stop you. You asked, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? It is I. And I was talking about things I knew nothing about, things far too wonderful for me. You said, listen, and I will speak. I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. I had only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. I take back everything I said, and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. Takes God 64 questions to get Job there. Finally, Job is repentant. He repents of not knowing God better and speaking arrogantly about him. And he takes back everything he said about God. Mark this. His suffering has still not been relieved. God didn't say, let me make everything better, and now you and I can get to know each other better. He got to know God better before his suffering is relieved or removed. So what's the purpose of suffering? The three friends. It's for your discipline. God is your judge. Elihu, it's for your direction. God is a teacher. Job, it's for my destruction. God is a bully. God, Job, your faith in me has demonstrated that Satan's accusations were false. <laughs> Yay! Job, 
Your suffering has deepened your spiritual insight regarding my wisdom and my ways. What does he mean by that? Job continued to hold on in faith in spite of not understanding. Job's suffering glorified God's name. Job didn't curse God as Satan had predicted. It vindicated God's wisdom. Job recanted, and he said he didn't know what he spoke about. It vindicated God's ways. Job agreed that God knew best and did best, and it grew God's saint. Job met God afresh in the midst of his suffering. Verse 5 of 42, he says, I had only heard about you before. But now I have seen you with my own eyes. He has come to a deeper relationship with God through his suffering. We talked about this the first week. How does the suffering of the righteous glorify God's name? Because it reveals our voluntary worship as God's surrendered servant. You say, well, huh, who's gotten to see God? Lucifer, the fallen angels. Have you ever seen God? I haven't. We're, we're kind of groping around in the dark. God is saying to Satan and the fallen angels, I've made some creatures a little bit lower than you, and they're going to love me and worship me because they want to. You've seen me, and you rejected it. Therefore, everything I do to you is right. This book, there are so many cosmic things going on that aren't going to finish until the end of the book of the Revelation. <laughs> this thing right here, God... And remember, we read, didn't we read Ephesians 3.10, where it said that even the angels long to look into what's going on here? Remember that? If you were here for that first week. Can you imagine this? Especially those of you who are suffering, the angels are looking on going, Phew, they've never seen God. And look what they're doing. They love Him. They're worshiping Him. They've, still, they've put their faith in Him. Everything. This is amazing. Hey, come look at this. Do you understand what's going on? <laughs> I don't either. If you go, I don't know what's going on. I don't really know it either. All I know is it's like a kind of this big window, and the angels are looking to see what's going on. Because they've always seen God. They can't imagine someone not seeing God. Here we are. We've not seen him, and yet we can offer him our worship and our allegiance, and our faith. That glorifies God's name. It refines our character as fire refines and purifies precious metal. It demonstrates our motivation of love for God, not compensation. Let me say that again. When you're suffering... 
It demonstrates our motivation of love for God, not for compensation or relief. It grows God's saint because it deepens our understanding of God's person and character. In the same way it did with Job. It glorifies God's name because Satan's false accusations are silenced. And it strengthens us. It turns saints into soldiers. It affirms and vindicates God's wisdom and his ways. And allows the saint to trust and rest in God's benevolent wisdom. The suffering of the righteous accomplishes God's purposes. Well, there's an epilogue. It starts in verse 7 of chapter 42. After the Lord had finished speaking to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends, for you have not spoken accurately about me, as my servant Job has. Now, can you imagine if you're the three friends? <laughs> you don't know what you're talking about. I just talked to my servant. You have no idea what you're talking about. So take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you as your mediator, and I will accept his prayer on your behalf. I will not treat you as you deserve, for you have… What is that? I will not treat you as you deserve? Grace. Remember, we've been talking about grace, not retribution is how God deals with men. Look, here it is again. I will not treat you as you deserve, for you have not spoken accurately about me as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite did as the Lord commanded them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Later on, we get to uh, the law in Exodus they have basically uh, done a sacrifice of atonement, recognizing their sin, and they're offering up sin sacrifices for themselves. And they're going to Job as their mediator, kind of like the priest. <laughs> when Job prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes. I want you to imagine just a second I don't know how long Job was on the trash heap, but remember, it's long enough for him to, to lose a significant amount of weight. I don't know how long that is. A month? Two months? These three guys have to get these animals and come sacrifice, and what is required? Job has to pray for them. You ready to do that for your three buddies <laughs> who've spoken so much help to you? <laughs> Here they are, these three guys. And God says, bring sacrifices and Job will pray for you and I'll forgive you. 
is how is God going to hear Job? Only if Job does what first? Forgives them. Another evidence of Job's righteousness. What does Job do? He must forgive them so that he can pray. Amazing. This Job, this person, amazing person, that he would forgive them and they would all then be restored. It says in verse 10, second half of 10, in fact, the Lord gave him twice as much as before. Then all his brothers, sisters, and former friends came and feasted with him in his home, and they consoled him, finally, and comforted him, finally, because of all the trials the Lord had brought against him, or allowed. And each of them brought him a gift of money and a gold ring. So the Lord blessed Job in the second half of his life, even more than in the beginning, For now he had all these sheep and camels and oxen and female donkeys. He also gave Job seven more sons and three more daughters. And he talks about the name of their kids. In all the land, no women were as lovely as the daughters of Job. And their father put them into his will along with their brothers. Unheard of. Unheard of in this time to put women into the will. Again, Job is an unbelievably righteous, God-fearing, walking with God individual. This shows up again, not this, but putting women into a, um, um, an inheritance shows up later in Exodus. But it's not the first time it's shown up. It shows up here first. Their father put them into his will along with their brothers. Job lived 140 years after that, living to see four generations of his children and grandchildren. Then he died, an old man who had lived a long, full life. This is a great epilogue. God is angry with Job's three friends. They had limited God's wisdom and his ways. They have basically reduced their relationship to God um, on um, a contract. In other words, you know, they perform and they get, so there's some kind of an ROI, return on investment, that's kind of how they're operating with God, or uh, as the judge, that he's morally bound because they've, they've held up their end of the bargain, and so God owes them something. So their performance or somehow God owes them something. And God says, you have not understood me or my ways. So he requires a sacrifice of atonement from the three friends, but interestingly, not from Elihu, the last fellow who spoke. Elihu's counsel must have been true. He didn't make the same kind of accusations against Job or against God. In fact, he was trying to defend God, and he must have done a pretty good job or he would have had to offer up a sacrifice as well. And God asks Job, his servant, to function as their priest and mediator and pray for them. So the three would have had to repent and humble themselves before Job. That would have been pretty interesting to watch. Whoops. And then Job would have had to forgive them before praying. Interesting, um, these things 
all these things that he gets. Uh, 7,000, he had 7,000 sheep before, he, had, he got 14,000. He had 3,000 camels before, he got six. He had 500 oxen before, he gets 1,000. Everything is doubled. Everything but one thing. And he's saying, oh, wait a minute. He didn't get seven more sons or three more daughters. May I suggest to you that's because they were with God. And in fact, Job did have double of everything because though the first are not living on earth anymore, they are still living and they are living with God. The first book talks about what happens to the righteous when they die. They're with God. And he counts them. He says, hey, I'll give you seven more because I already got seven. I'll give you seven more. So you have double. I've doubled everything. A lot of people speculate also because of this, because Job lives 140 years, that he must have been about 70 when he went through this. And God doubled his years before and after. And it doesn't say 70 years anywhere. This is speculation, but it makes sense to me. He lived 70 years. God gave him another 140. Great book. Great book. I hope you learned something about God after reading the book of Job. Big question. How should I respond if God calls me to distinguish service? Remember, this is probably something that if you could avoid it, somehow you would. But Job couldn't, and you and I have been in those kinds of situations. Something we can't avoid. And God calls us onto the field for distinguished service. How should I respond? Remember, sometimes God does step aside and calls on an ordinary saint to become his extraordinary spiritual champion on the battlefield. I need to remember to ask, what can I get out of this? Not, how can I get out of this? I'm convinced I have encountered um, two, I think, in my life. The, these happen to be men, but I'm sure there are women also. Um, God has called them on the battlefield as his extraordinary spiritual champion, and they were put, at least in my life, to show me how to die. I'm sure they lived remarkably, but they came into my life to show me what it looks like when a godly person dies and how to handle that. We need to remember we can continue to trust God and cling to Him in faith and be His weapon against the enemy and His witness before men and angels. I want to show you a remarkable 
woman of faith. You know this person, especially this time of year. Turn to Luke chapter 1. It's in the New Testament. Yes, I know, I know. Luke chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 26. Remember how Luke 1 starts out. We get Zechariah and Elizabeth, and an announcement is made to them that they're going to have a son there to name him John. This will be John the Baptist. Six months later, verse 26, in the sixth month, the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. Now, this again is all speculation, but probably Mary is 16, 17, 18. She is a young person. (laughs) She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, now I'm, let's say that you and I are 36. Let's say we're 46 and Gabriel shows up. Okay? Just rewind that back to, just let's imagine she was 16. Rewind your clock back to when you were 16 and here comes Gabriel. Ta-da! I'm Gabriel. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed. (laughs) I love that. Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary asked the angel, but how can this happen? I am a virgin. The angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. What's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. People used to say she was barren, but she's now in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. Get this. You're 16. You're engaged to a guy. An angel has just shown up and told you you're going to have a baby. Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. And the angel left her. That is stunning faith. She is the mother of our Lord. She found favor with God. Sound like anybody else we just studied? 
Anybody else favored by God? Job. Mary found favor with God. The angel comes and tells her these things, and she says, she, she embraces it. An unexpected and unknown future. She does not know what's going to happen. And yet, what does she say? May it be to me as you have said. I am the Lord's servant. She pressed through her fear. She must have been afraid. And she grabbed hold of faith and quietly said, Yes, Lord. Yes. You know, I kind of think God's question reading between the lines was, Mary, will you trust your life to me no matter what the cost is? Will you walk with me? Mary, do you trust me? Yes, Lord. May it be to me as you have said. I don't know what it means, but may it be to me as you have said. What an unbelievable young woman. A walk of faith looks like focusing on God's wisdom, power, and character. Since in creation I've turned chaos into order, beauty, and good. Can't I do that in your situation? On the basis of what you do understand about me, can't you humbly and completely trust me for what you don't understand? I don't know how much Bible Job had. I kind of think it was about the size of a post-it note. Everything he knew about God, he could have written on a post-it note. Mary, maybe she knew a little more. You know how much you know? This is done. 66 books. Finished. For us to know him. We need to draw near to God in these times. Remember, we've talked about Jesus' example in the garden. Sometimes our first thought is with self-reliance or independence, John Wayne, and we, we're going to go handle the situation on our own. And Jesus said, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm headed to the garden. I'm going to pray. That's going to be my first response. I'm going to pray. We need to learn from Jesus when we get in these situations to go pray. So, how should the righteous respond to unmerited suffering? Can you imagine? Okay, I, I just can't, I can't leave this this time of year. Can you imagine Mary? Okay, they go to the town, right? And there's no room at the inn. Now, remember these towns are like towns of 100, maybe 200 people. Do you think other people in towns know what's going on in other towns? Let's say yes. Mary goes from one town to another town. 
oh, there's the pregnant girl. There's no room in the inn for you. There could have been lots of reasons she got turned away. The suffering that Mary went through, unbelievable. Unbelievable what she did. All right, how should the righteous respond to unmerited suffering? By embracing it rather than seeking to escape it. Let me give you one more illustration to hopefully drive this home tonight. You know what that is. That's a rock tumbler. What do you put in a rock tumbler? Rocks. What do those rocks look like when you put them in the tumbler? Like rocks. (laughs) Right? But you add a little bit of water and you add a little bit of grit and you turn on the machine. And what are those rocks doing? (laughs) Right? They just turn and turn and turn and turn. And it can take weeks and months That thing goes around and around and around and around and the rocks are tumbling over each other and rubbing up against that grit. And, oh, you know what? The rocks didn't ask to go into that tumbler, did they? No, they didn't. Look what happens to those rocks. Given enough time of suffering. They're revealed in beautiful ways that no one knew was in there except for God. And he says, I want everyone to see this. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put you in a rock tumbler with a little bit of water and some grit. And I'm going to turn it on. And you're going to be tumbling around in there and you're going to keep asking me to get out. And I'm going to keep saying, not yet. I know what I'm doing. And when you're finished, I'll let you out. (laughs) Because I want everyone, including the angels, to see what was in there that no one knew but me. Will you let me? Will you let me put you in the tumbler? Because beauty is going to come out. For next time, read Exodus 1 through 4. Easy lesson. My encouragement, don't stop. Go ahead and keep reading. The rest of Exodus will come due uh, when uh, when we return. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, I, I am such, I'm so like a rock. I'm just... Um, I'm thick-headed like a rock. My heart is like stone. Uh, when I get into seasons of unmerited suffering, I just, I'm the rock that's banging on the little cylinder saying, let me out, let me out. Uh, would you help me uh, to trust you more? Uh, if my brothers and sisters agree uh, with, with those statements, would you help them trust you more? It's, it's really fear. And when things get out of our control, uh, and that's when you just ask us to trust you, 
and to worship you and to give you our undivided allegiance. Uh, and you'll look so kindly and graciously on us. You will be there with us and help us. And we want to be transformed. We want to be taken out of the rock tumbler, and we want, because of what you've done, not because of what we've done, but because of what you've done, we want to show um, our family and our neighbors and our friends. And Lord, however this works, uh, that even the angels would see the beauty that you have been able to draw out of us uh, through it. Uh, We long to have that happen. And pray that uh, as you always have been, you would be gentle with us and help us. Be with us. We love you. We pray for this evening and for this week. Uh, We pray for your blessing. And we ask for it all in Jesus' name. Amen.